sunshine. Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. I only... You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. A house at the top of the hill. The lights are always on, warm at night, but nobody is ever seen within. The people in the town are content enough to be left alone, so they're content enough to leave alone. When he's just a boy, he meets a girl down by the creek. She says that she lives up there, and that he should come to visit for dinner. And so he goes. And when he goes... The door is opened, and his coat is taken by someone he identifies as a butler, but, at the very moment after, cannot remember anything about. Not age, not gender, not color of hair. And he's alone, in the well-lit foyer. He begins to walk through the house, and the first room he enters is a dining room, with covered platters on the table. He smells dinner, but is too polite to look inside, hungry though he is. He takes a handful of nuts from the sideboard instead, salted almonds, and eats them as he walks the house. He has not gone up any stairs, but the next room he finds himself in is a glassed-in terrace that overlooks the forest and the far-below town. Between the time of a look to the left and back, the girl is there. He realizes that he does not know her name. He asks her and she laughs and starts to tell him about a river she knows that winds around the dozen faces of a mountain, and into conifer forests filled with fog, and how when a fire starts among the damp needles, the smoke and the fog rise together, twin helix, towards the cloud-bound peaks. And without a break between, she tells him about a place she knows where dry straw-broken grass pricks up from red-veined and black soil for half a hundred miles to the mountains, and how small horses live on the plain, and when the winter comes they stand together against the white wind and the white sky, manes and tails flowing together, brown into black, with a half-hundred-mile-away mountain standing, whiter against white behind him. And after she tells him this story, she kisses him for a long, perfect moment and leads him back to the dining room. When she opens the terrines, one is filled with cedar needles, the other full of black earth, veined with red, with yellow bits of broken straw grass shooting up and through. Gingerly he takes a small fingerful of the soil, and when he holds it up to the light, the light is moonlight, and he's standing alone at the crest of the hill, cold in the clammy air of a rainy spring night. In after years he becomes a bitter and suspicious old man, and when he sees children at the creek, he shouts at them and drives them away with his cane.
With a series of oiled clicks, he loads the shotgun and locks the barrels back in place. The cold air in his nostrils smells of wood smoke. Just ahead of him, just out of sight, a twig snaps. He rises to a half-crouch, and his pupils dilate. He makes his breathing as shallow as he can. He thinks for a moment that he can see the antlers over the bulrushes, but there's a haze of fog that touches everything with silver, and he can't be sure if it's real or wishful imagination. He runs his tongue along the front of his teeth, and they're acidic with the oily chain coffee he drank an hour earlier. He suddenly wishes he could brush his teeth and take a bath. Under the slate blue sky, standing in the whisper of red-branched birches, he wishes he could be pure. Another twig crackles, and he holds his breath altogether. For a moment, everything is still. Even the wind drops away. He can hear the space around him like snowfall. A deer emerges from the trees. The deer's eyes are black, as the glacial tarns you find scattered in these hills. Its coat is a caramel velvet, with here and there a white spot like a fleck of foam. It moves with utmost grace, and the antlers on its head are a laurel wreath. He puts the gun to his shoulder and fires. Sound cracks open the gray afternoon. The lead shot puts an abrupt ruin to the right side scapula and humerus of the deer. The crimson torrents guide the deer down to a crash in the undergrowth. Spears of dry grass snap beneath its weight. The hunter rises to his feet. Though the sky is so low, he almost feels he has to hunch. Mud and mire suck at his boots as he struggles for dry footing. Tall rushes and red-boned brambles block his way. But he drags them over and stops them at the base, forgetting between him and his prize. It's not too far to go. The shot was taken from only a few meters away. He stops. And for a moment... He stares with a slack mouth at the torn-up body below him. The gun slithers from his fingers and clacks to the ground. It's the same. The same eyes. The same injuries. But it isn't a deer that looks up at him, trying to breathe through a mouth thick with blood. It's a boy. Slowly, the hunter lowers himself down on one knee. The boy looks up at him and a flicker of recognition shines through the eyes, opaque with pain. He says, Father? She's playing in the woods with her big brother, because it's the middle of September, and the thick humidity of the later summer has slipped itself out of the pines and the sycamores and disappeared to the south. The cabin is miles behind them with their parents, glad for the escape from the city and glad for their children's escape from them, spending a first afternoon together in too long a time. Her brother has a stick in his hand, he always has a stick in his hand when he's out exploring in the woods, and he's standing at the clump of an uprooted tree, directing imaginary armies. He shouts an order at her and she sticks her tongue out at him. He brandishes his stick, but neither of them takes seriously the idea that he'll hit her with it. He's her big brother, and they both know that he's there to protect her, always. They hear a rustling in the woods, and they look at one another, and he raises a finger to his lips. Shh. Then he points in the direction of the noise, and she nods, and they move towards the noise together, trying to take soft, scoutly footsteps. 
but instead managing to rustle more dry leaves and crack more dry twigs than if they'd walked normally. They reach the top of a steep slope, and looking down through the dusty trees, they catch a glimpse of a black-brown shape lumbering out of sight. It's a bear, he hisses at her, and her eyes widen as she puts her arms around herself. We should go back, she says. He shakes his head. It's only a black bear, he says, and it doesn't have any cubs. We can get a better look without being in any danger. She says she's scared, but he says it's okay, and begins to creep down the slope. Because he's her brother, she goes with him. They can still hear the crackling up ahead, but they don't catch another glimpse. Down, down the slope they go, until they have to clamber a six-foot drop of Precambrian stone into the dry bed of a little creek. The bear is waiting for them, only it isn't quite a bear. It takes them a moment to notice that it's there, because the sun is westering, and the bear is sitting in the shadow cast by the bowl of a dry old tree. But then it inclines its head forward to catch the light, and she covers her mouth and screams as she presses herself against the rock. Her brother steps in front of her and holds up the stick like a spear, but his hand is shaking. And then... The bear starts to make a little noise, and after a second, she realizes that it's talking, and what it's saying is, no, 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 and out of the shadow of the bowl of that tree appears the slim-fingered and elegant arm of a young lady, and it rises to the bear's lips, and for some reason that she can't later understand, they both do fall quiet. The bear stands up and steps out of the shadow, and it's much taller than it should be. Where its rear legs should be the short, stumpy ones of a bear, they are instead long and powerful limbs shaped like a human's, although still thickly furred with black-brown pelt. From the powerful shoulders and biceps of the bear sprout the pink elbows and pale forearms, wrists, and fingers of a woman. The fingers are moving slowly, the pads of each one brushing sensuously against the pads of their sister thumbs. Still hushing them, still cooing, the bear walks towards them and crouches down by her brother. No, no, no. Shh, shh, says the bear. And with one beautiful hand, it plucks the stick from her brother's clammy grip and sets it down among the dead leaves. With its other arm, it begins to caress her brother's head and neck and to ruffle his hair. No, no, no. Shh says the bear, and it wraps those beautiful arms around her brother and stands again, lifting him up to its shoulder twelve feet in the air with the strength of the black and awful pillars of its legs. Shh, says the bear, still caressing her brother's soft hair and shocked slack face, and with long, slow strides it takes him away and disappears amongst the tan, dry trees. She sits for a long minute by the base of the rocks, trying to shake away her stupor. And when her head finally clears, she begins to scream and scream and scream. And she tries to find her way home, but she gets lost without her brother. And it's not until midnight that the search party finds her, cold and sobbing, alone in the woods. She never sees her brother again. All that they ever find of him later is that stick, laid gentle on the autumn leafy ground. In the house where he grew up, there had been a deck of cards in an old drawer, and he had never known what game they were meant for. 
The drawer had been in a little cabinet in his parents' living room, femur high to his adult self, and made of dark and shiny wood. It was set into a little recess in the wall, and was used to support an antique bronze lamp that was shaped like mercury, stepping up into the air from the stake set in the mouth of a gorgon. To look at it, it had no door, but this was because it was spun around to face the wall. His father and aunt had a dispute over inheritance, and inside the drawers of this cabinet was a bag of old family silver that his aunt did not know existed. And so far as his parents cared, that was all that was there. But as a child, he had had a child's inquisitiveness, and in the other drawers, lined with green bays and smelling like an old billiard table, he found other things to interest children. A handful of tarnished skeleton keys, a brass clock key, old coins from countries that didn't exist anymore, and the deck of cards, printed on thick, yellowing stock, in green-black ink like an American bill. In later years, when he thought back on the deck, he presumed that they were meant for some kind of archaic game like tarot, but could never find out what kind of game that was. Never on the internet, or in several books and old card games leafed through in idle moments of curiosity, could he ever find any image or description of any set of playing cards that ever bore resemblance to the ones in the old drawer in the old cabinet that faced around backwards in the living room. In truth, he had been so young when he discovered the cards that he couldn't even remember enough details about them to begin to search. He couldn't remember the number of cards in the deck, or the numbers on the cards, or the suits, or even if there were suits. He could only remember one card in the deck, the one that had been on top when he'd first, with young fingers, slit them from their crumbling box that was so much older than he was. Its image, engraved green-black and stamped onto the card, had depicted a skeleton in robes and a pointed Canterbury cap, green grinning out from the top of the deck. At the bottom of the card, in wide capital letters, was the word Patricio. In later years, he tried to remember the other cards, but he couldn't. All that he could remember was Patricio, which he came to decide meant the patrician. Well, a deck of cards isn't something that comes to define a person's whole life, and so, except for now and again, he forgot about the deck of cards and the secret drawer. And decades later, after his parents had died and his aunt had stepped in and sold their home and disposed of their estate, he remembered the secret drawer, and assumed that his aunt had gotten her hands on it. Once he thought to call her and ask her about the deck of cards, but she had no idea what he was talking about. He let it go. Little things slip through the cracks of life, and there's nothing to be done for them but accept their loss. And more decades passed, and he had his own children, and he got old. And by and by, they placed him in a home and forgot about him. And he was left to spend the smoke days of his ending life with the other blind and coughing people who had outlived their usefulness, playing cards. And I'm telling you this because I'm the one that he played cards with. And over the course of long and empty years in that home, he and I, we told each other a lot about our lives, and about the little mysteries in them. And it was on one of these days, one of these hundreds and hundreds of days playing cards and waiting to die, that I dealt out the deck. And I noticed one of the cards felt funny in my hand, thick and glossy like vellum. And when he held up his hand to look for queens and aces, he let out a long, slow laugh, and he looked at me over the cards, and he said, 
I think I'm going to have trouble slawing this one off. And then he set his cards down on the table, and just like that, with his blue eyes open and his white teeth grinning, he died. And before I called for help, I reached across the table, and I looked in his hand. It was a bad hand, nothing higher than a seven, except for one face card that I'd never seen before. It was printed green and black on yellowed stock, and it showed a skeleton in a Canterbury cap. Patricio, it said. The Patrician. I still have it in my drawer. I wonder, where's the rest of the deck? He took shelter in the villa that afternoon. The heat hadn't broken yet, and the countryside all around him, far from looking like the postcards and the storybooks and history books from his childhood, had turned into a yellow-brown dust bowl. He was thirsty when he finally dragged himself into the villa. More than thirsty, in fact. He was dying of thirst. He had used his last half-mouthful of brackish water ten miles earlier, and the inside of his throat felt like it was as full of ochre and yellow broken quill grass as the landscape around him. Although it had been badly bombed, the villa was still magisterial. Every room, every courtyard, every corridor was shaded and cool to walk, but still cascaded with white sunlight. It was very quiet, very still. The distant boom of guns seemed only to bolster up the stillness, as did the rare drone of a solitary insect. The enemy had been through the villa already and plundered it. All the food in the ransacked larders had been taken or spoiled. Worse, the faucets and cisterns were dry. The surge and kick of panic in his chest was only deadened by sheer exhaustion and sheer thirst. And then he heard the lilt of trickling water. He followed it down a hallway and round a corner. This was an even older part of the building, and close to the floor, the walls here were raised of ancient tufa blocks. The hall came to a dead end, but on the other side of the wall he faced, he could hear the singing, running water. A bomb blast had torn away a section near the ceiling, and a wedge of hot sunlight slid through the gap. With a running start, he jumped off the wall and caught a hold of the ledge. Exhausted, even from the short exertion of dragging himself up, he rested on the broken wall for a long moment before pulling himself through to thump down in the spiky grass of a hidden courtyard. It was now high noon, and the sun was impossibly bright, amplified by the brightness of thirst and exhaustion. He held a hand up and cast a palm of shade over his eyes. The courtyard was small, and in one corner squatted a tiny, ancient olive tree, its silvery leaves unbearable to look at in the sun's glare. Behind it, Several arches stood out from the wall, the spaces underneath them bricked up long ago. One of these bricked-up sections had been tumbled open by the tremors of nearby bomb blasts, and the cool darkness of the interior beckoned to him through the heat. But the music of flowing water came from inside the courtyard. In the centre, an elbow of stone jetted up from the yellow grass. A girl's face had been carved onto its surface long ago and she and her border of acanthus leaves had been badly weathered by time. What interested him, though, was that a crystal bulb of icy water boiled up from the top of the stone and rilled down to fill a deep, clear pool in front of it. A holy spring, he thought. But at the same time, in that way where it's possible for two words to be interposed on top of one another in a tired mind, 
he thought of it as a haunted spring. But these thoughts rose up in the peripheral parts of his mind, because he was already throwing himself onto the points of the grass and thrusting his cracked hands into the water. He plunged them in up to the wrist, and he looked at them for a moment, blurry in that cold other world. And then he pulled them up to his parched and bloody lips and drank. For a long, ecstatic moment, the brightness of the afternoon stole over and obliterated him, and he was one with the sunlight and the bright water and the silver leaves of the ancient tree. Then his hands were empty, and he plunged them in again, and he drank until his whole dehydrated body felt as swollen as a water skin. At last satisfied, he dragged himself to the shade of the olive tree and allowed himself to rest. A splash woke him. It had not been long, maybe ten minutes, maybe an hour, but the sun was still bright enough beyond the shade that the world seemed white when he squinted out at the fountain. Something about the rock struck him as strange, now that he looked at it again. He blinked again, and his eyes adjusted a little to the light, and he realized that the strange grey hump that protruded from one face of the rock was the shoulder of a man, leaning against its opposite side. He stiffened, and Treebark rasped him through his threadbare uniform. Grey was the enemy's colour, and this whole time he had been sleeping three heartbeats from a hostile knife. But the splash had not been made by the enemy soldier. He was on the opposite side of the rock from the pool, dozing in the leeward shade. The splash had come from the pool itself. Quietly, he put a palm down in the grass and levered himself into a crouch. Another little splash disturbed the surface of the pool. A fish? His stomach gargled. He had been on quarter rations for the last three days. But as he rose among the olive boughs, he saw that it wasn't a fish. He blinked again, giving his brain a moment to reinterpret the light-struck evidence of his eyes. But it showed him the same thing a second time. The smooth and olive-skinned hand and wrist of a young woman was rising slowly from the surface and diamond-like beads of water trailed from its long fingers. This hand was joined by a second one, which rested itself on the rim of the pool and gently seemed to push. The crown of a head appeared over the water's edge and was followed by a long neck and slim shoulders. Delicately, like the water had no grip on her, a young woman in white slid up onto the bank, with her bare calves and ankles still trailing in the bitter water. She was facing away from him, so he could only see the back of her head and the torrent of black hair that spilled down to the bell of her waist. He shrank back into the leaves and foliage. And even though he found her figure attractive, he was filled with a sense of unease. The pool was barely wider than her torso, and the water was so cold it had turned his hands pink and raw in the time it had taken him to drink. Yet, this girl had pulled her whole body from its icy mouth. She teased her hair over one shoulder and began to wring the water from it. Droplets met the surface with a sound like fingers tapping the strings of a harp. As she twisted her back, he caught a glimpse of her face in profile and the breath caught in his throat. She was as beautiful as any man or woman that he had ever seen. But some peculiarity about the line of her jaw jangled in his eyes. It went just too far back angled just too far down. She stretched and yawned, and as she did, 
He saw her mouth was full of needle-sharp teeth, each one an inch and a half long, pearlescent, and fanned to nestle in among its neighbors. He made a small noise. Slowly, she turned to look over her shoulder, and a wisp of amusement floated over her face as she saw him hidden in the olive tree. She pulled one foot from the water and placed it underneath her, half turning to face him. Her eyes were black as well. Not the black of olives, but the deep black of underground, of the hidden waters where the spring had its origin. Flicking her still damp hair and twisting a delicate wrist, she beckoned him out into the sunlight. But he would not go. She beckoned him again, and this time she let her other hand trail absent-mindedly, suggestively down the length of her collarbone. He pressed farther back into the arms of the olive tree. Her face twisted, and she looked away in frustration. But as she did, she caught sight of the enemy's shoulder. She looked back up at him, and gave him a different kind of smile than before. Complicit. Teasing. Oh, you shouldn't have. With a slow, sashaying walk, she made her way around the rock to where the enemy soldier lay sleeping. He stepped out from the olive tree. It was still so hot, but his sweat was cold, and his hands kept clenching and unclenching, the pressure of his fingernails leaving little crescents in the palms of his hands. She looked at him over the stone and blessed him with a long, slow wink as she unhinged her jaws. He almost shouted a warning, but then he thought about that hated gray uniform and all the people he'd seen die, and his jaw cranked tight. His heart contracted inside him, and he stood still and said nothing. She bent down, and the stone blocked his line of sight. For a long succession of minutes, he stood still in the bright sun, now trembling slightly at the fingertips, and listened to awful noises. At length, long length, the screaming and the hoarse calls for help died down, and all he could hear was the wet sound of chops on flesh and the sad rustle of wind in the olive boughs. Although his watch was broken, and he did not know it, this lasted for twenty minutes. When the girl reappeared, her white shift was sluiced with blood, and her face was a nightmare of blood and water. She smiled at him once again, too widely and too deep and too red, and wordlessly was gone into the pool. He staggered forward and stared into its depths, half expecting her to rush up out of it with her anglerfish smile aimed at him. But the pool was empty, and the pellucid water was undisturbed by even a swirl of red. He crouched and filled his canteen. After that, he stood and walked around to the other side of the stone to see the mess was already starting to smell in the sunshine, and the kernel of anger crumbled in his chest as he stood looking at the remains of a stranger in a grey jacket. When he left the courtyard, through the broken section of the bricked-in arch, he tried to plug as much debris as he could into the hole. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, with music composed by Alon Citrin and original artwork by Jenny Henderson.
This week's episode, Short Snips, was written by Alexander Saxton and featured Emma Burns, Chaitanya Valadares, Alexander Saxton, Elon Zitrin, and Rachel Hart in order of appearance. Tune in every Thursday for full-length episodes. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and leave a review on iTunes. You can also email us at therongstation at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.